Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Phoenix, Arizona, it's time for Phoenix Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Welcome to another episode of Best of Health Radio by Barb Regis, Ask the PA. Welcome to beautiful Tempe, Arizona. And you know what? It was less than 100 today and we actually had thunderstorms. Every month I bring in different people from all walks of life. Last month was somebody who has a software program for allergies for restaurants. Well, this time we are going to go a whole different direction. We've got the great Dr. Richard Brown, a.k.a. Ricky. He said I could call him Ricky. I'm so excited. And one of his patients, Emily Hughes, Dr. Brown has Brown Plastic Surgery in Scottsdale, Arizona. And Emily, I'm not sure where you live. I live in Phoenix. She lives in Phoenix. Well, welcome to the studio, everybody. And hey, welcome aboard. Ricky, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? How much do you want to know? Well, <laughs> how hey. you got to the point of becoming a plastic surgeon to start with? Oh, my God. Brief That's version. a long story. Okay, Ricky Brown. Uh, I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. So I'm a Southerner. And uh, so grew up in Georgia and ended up going to college in the Midwest. Basically decided to go to med school really late. I mean, I was a I was at the University of Georgia and I was a senior in college when I decided to go to medical school. Um, and so long story short, ended up doing residency, general mm-hmm. surgery residency. And in the middle of all that, fell in love with plastic surgery. And the rest is history. So what made you fall in love with plastic surgery? I think what what really grabbed me was I was in a level one trauma unit in Chicago. Mm -hmm. So you can guess what that's like. I was a general, I'm double boarded. So I did general surgery first and then plastic surgery. So I got to see a lot of trauma, got to see, saw a lot of trauma. Mm -hmm. And so there was the need for a lot of reconstructive work from, from trauma and the plastic surgeons were the ones doing a lot of that work. And so I was introduced to plastic surgery in, in that manner. And then I just kind of slowly started to learn more and more about right. plastic surgery. And that's how I got my interest. Now, just a curiosity, uh, do you start as a general surgeon and then get a fellowship in plastics or how does that work? Yeah. So there, there's the old track and the new track. Okay. Um, the old way used to be that you would have to do some type of a surgical training. It could have been orthopedic surgery, general surgery, something you had to finish first. And then when you were done completing that training, you could apply for an additional residency or fellowship in plastic surgery. That was the way I did it. I did five years of general surgery with a year okay. of research. So I spent six years. Then I applied for plastic surgery. Today, they can do a six-year track where they get into plastics nice. right out of med school, and they do three years of the general type surgery stuff, and then their last three years are focused on plastic surgery. That's awesome. Great. Well, Emily, tell yes. us about yourself. Well, gosh, there's a lot. It's kind of like the same question. Like, where did you, where do you we, begin? We always, start, we always start, every show, I start with a loaded question no. like that, because then it starts leading the conversation. That's so, great. So since I just met you two seconds ago, yeah. tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, well, I am happily married and have three adorable, awesome. beautiful children, seven, five, and three. Okay. And um, very busy. That's just kind of my life statement right now. I'm busy all the time. Um, but I like being busy with my that's, family and my kids. And, that's great, making yeah. that a priority. And so, curiously, I would like to know how the two of you met. Well, Ricky 
You want to take that one? Should well, I explain? <laughs> well, I can start it, but you can say how yeah, you found me. Yeah, go ahead. So, yeah. so I, um, you know, I do all kinds of breast and body procedures. Um, I happen to do breast reductions for patients, and I try to do those through insurance if we can. It's gotten tougher today, but we do because it's something I believe in that makes a huge difference in patients' lives. And so Emily sought me out. Take it away, Emily. Yeah, I actually had a friend who had also had a breast reduction, Mm -hmm. and um, she's an old friend, and we had been talking about it for years, and she kind of just started that investigation, you know, and— There's so many doctors out there. Yeah. Yeah, and she really—she went to a few in the Valley and landed on Dr. Brown, and the rest is history with that. Um, I ended up going to see him about a year and a half after Uh she had her procedure, and I just—yeah, I was in love with— the way I was treated with um, just kind of the information that they gave me, the hope for sure. Um, It was a long process for me, but um, yeah, that's how we, that's how we met was just starting that conversation. So what's so cool is first thing that I'm noticing is that uh, you do, you know, elective procedures, but you're doing a lot of procedures that go through, you know, insurance. I'm just curious uh, to get a little bit more into your story specifically. Mm-hmm. When you went to see him and wanted the reduction, was it because you were having neck and back pain? Yeah, it was it was literally everything. I mean, mm-hmm. it was my neck. It's I'm still working on all of that even, you know, months sure. out. Physical therapy, um, strengthening. Yeah, just all of that. And neck pain, back pain. And really a huge thing for me was just I was so uncomfortable and I was sure. wearing sizes that were much bigger than what I actually needed to wear just to feel like I wasn't kind of, for lack of a better term, like spilling out of my sure. clothes. Um, I was very uncomfortable and very self-conscious all the time. And so when you met Ricky, basically, you know, he, I assume you consulted her and gave her options. Tell, tell me about how that experience was with him that made him different than other providers. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's definitely night and day. I only had, um, I had kind of consulted with Dr. Brown and another one in the Valley. Um, and the difference was really night and day. I showed up and was taken to this like really nice room with a nice couch and, consultation over a coffee table, not on a medical chair with a, you know, a gown that opened in weird places. And Mm -hmm. um, before we even went to any type of examination room, um, we just had a conversation. Um, Then we, then we did go to like an examination room for pictures and some, you know, more official type of things, just kind of going in that direction. And I remember the biggest thing for me was I had this like beautiful, comfortable robe Mm -hmm. that made me feel. (laughs) Everybody loves our robe. I want one. Can I? Okay, have one? so tell us about the robes. <laughs> They're just like these silky, cozy, comfortable, nice. not like stiff paper, weird stuff. You know, you right. want. The, I mean, the things that she's talking about, it, it, it doesn't just happen by chance. I mean, my my whole goal with seeing these patients in consultations is that I want it to be a comfortable experience right. because oh, they're yeah. nervous. Right. Um, they're coming to talk about not just having surgery, but a part of their body they're conscious about. And so we try to make it as comfortable as possible. And the gowns just, everybody <laughs> loves those gowns. So who man. picked out the gowns originally? You know, the way it happened was my original partner before he retired mm-hmm. when I came to town had some old ones that like the buttons were coming off of. (laughs) But I was like, these things are amazing. I mean, even I liked them. So I looked at the tags before we trashed them all. And we we found the the same company and ordered new nice ones with my logo. (laughs) Nice, nice. (laughs) I really appreciated, like, I'm about to take my shirt off in front of a man that I don't know. Right. And showing him the most uncomfortable thing about my body. So 
I would really appreciate a nice robe. And he's just really kind and bantered with me and talked with me. It wasn't just a medical procedure. It was fun. (laughs) And that's what, you know, patients really, really need these days is somebody who actually cares, someone who listens. And so I'd like to talk a little bit more about that with you. Um, Tell me about basically you guys decided to have surgery. Uh, How did the process go for the surgery? How did your recovery go? How did you reach out to to Dr. Brown? How did that go? Um, Well, his, one of his, um, employees that handles kind of all of the the patient kind mm-hmm. of interactions and surgery planning and all that. She was amazing to work with. Her name's Octavia. Missy. And, oh, Octavia yeah. and Missy. Yeah, yeah and Missy, Missy's too. Missy's medical assistant. Um, but Octavia really worked with me on yeah. just explaining everything I needed to do on the insurance end and was mm-hmm. really kind in that way. Yeah. And so once we kind of figured that all out, it was game on and we scheduled surgery literally three and a half weeks how how fast did you get the uh, authorization to the insurance you know nowadays actually it really happens pretty fast within six weeks they'll tell you yes or no and you know what i i've gotten now since i've been out for 10 years Mm -hmm. and i kind of understand and you know being a pa you get it like i just know who i think is going to get covered and who's not based on their size because there are a lot of women that come in wanting a breast reduction what it ends up being is they just need a breast lift and they don't really have that much extra tissue they just don't like that they're kind of hanging and they want to be more lifted i can look at the breast and tell like hey i'm going to be able to get x amount of grams or so out of each breast and the insurance companies won't tell us this but we know that there's a threshold of about 400 grams or so that they want to see in order to cover the procedure so i can just tell yeah, that's and I remember a story with a patient of mine several years ago, and that was the whole thing was like, it was it was kind of strange. It was like it was covered, but they knew that that if they didn't get enough grams of tissue on both sides, mm-hmm. there's a chance that the insurance was going to back out and say no, it's not covered. Yeah, and so I remember like. Mm-hmm. Everybody was like, we've got to do this really quick. we got to get the weights real quick. It was just the most bizarre thing ever. Yeah. And the story about it was really bizarre. The insurance yeah. is getting really painful. I mean, it's a whole other show that we could do. Mm-hmm. But it really oh, – absolutely. They're, they're making it so impossible for any doctor to want to continue doing what we do because exactly. we literally have to fight them to get paid. Oh, yeah. And, and that's in every – arena. Uh, mm-hmm. We see that in primary care all the time and yeah. all the specialists and the reimbursements are getting worse and worse mm-hmm. and worse. And that's why I guess you're very fortunate that you have uh, the other side of your practice that's, I, I don't ever want to say the wrong words, but like cosmetics, that Aesthetic kind of thing, and aesthetics. Yep. And mm-hmm. so tell me a little bit about that practice. Um, so I do a little bit of everything, mm-hmm. but really my love is breast and body work. So okay. I do a lot of mommy makeover type surgeries. And for those nice. of you who don't know what a mommy makeover is, um, it. it's really any constellation of multiple types of procedures that they're trying to improve upon. It, it doesn't have to be just after pregnancy. We call it a mommy makeover, but usually after pregnancy, we'll see women who have the excess tummy skin or stretched out breasts and they want to be rejuvenated and right. fixed. And so I do a lot of breast and body work, but and, and a lot of my cosmetic experiences come from years and years and years of breast reconstruction for cancer, and I still do that stuff too. Ah, oh, thank you so much for doing that. That's something it's I really pleasure. wanted to dive into yeah. as well. Yeah. There's so many patients that to be given the opportunity to try to look and feel natural again. Yep. Thank you for doing that for You're patients. What's, what's your favorite procedure to do? Oh. If you like, oh, I can't wait till tomorrow because I'm going to get to do XYZ. <laughs> It used to be rhinoplasty, believe it or not. Really? It used to be rhinoplasty. Where I trained, we uh-huh. did a lot of rhinoplasties, and it's a very technical procedure, and I think I like the preciseness of uh-huh. it. 
if you don't do a lot of those, it's a game of millimeters. And literally, I would do like the perfect, what I would think would be the perfect rhino. And they'd come back and be like, I, right here? like, I, And I'm like, oh, I can't do that. So can you define rhinoplasty for our audience? Um, rhinoplasty is nose reconstruction right. so or, or cosmetic nose surgery. So things about your nose you don't like that you want to change. I had one. I had one when I was 24. Mm-hmm. You probably didn't know that. Um, you got and, a great nose. And so thank you. You're welcome. And uh, <laughs> So do you. Thank you. I, I haven't had my one. So to answer your question initially a long time ago, that was it. I stopped doing them because you really need to do a lot of them. And I feel like in this day and age, it's such a high stakes game with nose surgery that you need to have done an extra fellowship beyond training to really be good at them. So if I had to say, what do I, what do I get excited about waking up each and every day for mm-hmm. if I could do it every day? There's probably two operations. Mm-hmm. It would either be some type of a breast augmentation or breast lift mm-hmm. or a tummy tuck. I love tummy tucks because they make such a humongous mm-hmm. difference for people's abdomens. That's great. So a question I have for you that a lot of people wonder about is that, you know, it's so expensive. So how do people, you know, prepare for something like that, especially if they feel like they need their entire, like, let's say, okay, I'm going to come in and see you. Everybody knows how I'm built. Okay. Out there. And I'm thinking, okay, I need liposuction. I need a tummy tuck. I need these little things on my arms lifted up. I need all these kinds of things. One of the things that I'd like to hear from you is like, how do you help someone discern what really needs to be done or should be done? What's overkill? What's underkill? Right. You know, most of this stuff is not a need. They're desires, right? So we want it their wants. There there are specific things about people's bodies that they want to change, which I am all about. You know, a lot of people look at what we do as shallow. People shouldn't need to change their bodies. But you know what? Why do you comb your hair every day? Why do you brush your teeth? Right, exactly. why, why do you get a tattoo? Why do you do certain things to yourself? It makes you look and feel a certain way and carry yourself a certain way. So, so what I try to do is um, when I see a patient, I literally just say, what are the major things that bother you? And they may list five or six different things that bug them. Mm-hmm. And if it's, if we can't do that all at the same time, I, I ask them to just, can you hone in on, pick one or two things that would be like game changers for you if you could do them right now. And then I have to assess whether they're ready for those procedures or not. Right. You know, and so that it's just a back and forth process of kind of trying to decide, are you right for this procedure or not? Is it is it more a from a mental health standpoint if they're right for it, or is it physically are they strong enough for it? Can you elaborate on that? I can. There's so Please. much here. This is what I talk about in my book. Um, so and we're yeah, gonna get to that. Too. I know we are. So so it's both. I think it's both. So some of it is for sure mental. Mm-hmm. So absolutely, I am a firm believer that. And and look, I had a rhinoplasty, and it was right. not. It was not for reconstructive purposes. I looked in the mirror and I saw something I didn't like that made me feel a certain way. Um, maybe everyone else didn't see that, but I saw it. And when I asked my parents about making that change, they were all for it. And after I made that change, I went from seeing my nose when I looked at my face to mm-hmm. just seeing my face. Right. And it wasn't that I was an insecure person, but I carried myself a different way after that procedure. More it's, confidence the, it's the same just... thing for these patients. I think that if we want to look and feel our best um, and we've we've exhausted things like diet and exercise and, mm-hmm. and good, healthy lifestyle, then I think that it's okay to do some things that are going to make you have a better relationship with people, deal better with your kids, carry yourself more confidently. It changes your job. It it really spills over into everything that we do in life. Right. And so your question about how do you know if they're ready or not, a good example would be, um, for instance, someone who who wants to have a tummy tuck may come to see me 
And I may say to them, you're not ready. Well, why are you not ready? Well, you're still carrying a good amount of extra weight. And while I can cut the skin off and tighten up the stomach muscles, which is what the procedure is, you carry a lot of fatty tissue around your internal organs, which I don't operate here, which is called visceral fat, which causes bulging of their belly, Mm -hmm. which then if I go to do their surgery, they're still going to kind of have a bulge that I can't fix no matter how tight I make their muscles. Mm -hmm. And so then all of a sudden, I'm letting someone come into a procedure that's not going to give them the best result. So I may say to them, hey, look, let's work on just a little bit more weight loss. Not because I care how you look, but I want to get the best, best result. Outcomes. I want to get the best result for you. Yeah. So, and and look, there's some patients that come back that say, hey, why is my t- stomach so bulgy? And th- this was before I was more hard on patients about this mm-hmm. thing. And I think, well, it's visceral fat. And as you lose more weight and lose that fat, your stomach will flatten more. Great answer. Okay. I'd like to go through a few procedures with you. And first of all, I think it's really important that we discern that he's a board-certified plastic Mm -hmm. surgeon. And there are people out there that are advertising right now that are doing procedures. And I'm just going to put it out there because that's what I do that they shouldn't be doing. And I'm going to give you an example of something that happened several years ago. And I maybe you can explain to me how this would even happen. But I remember it was about 12 years ago in my practice. Somebody came in and I was doing a you know breast and pap exam. And I go to do this breast exam. And I look at her uh, breasts and I'm like, whoa. And so basically what it was, she had implants. And... One of the implants on the left side was like all rippled up. I mean, it looked like waves on the ocean. And I said to her, I said, um, can I ask a question? She goes, yeah. I go, who did this? And she said, well, it was actually a podiatrist who was working with a, a surgeon to get certified to start doing plastic surgery. And I said, can I ask you why you would trust your body to someone like that? She goes, because it was about half the cost. Is have you ever heard of that kind of stuff going on? And can you tell me <laughs> oh, what? Yeah. And, no and that really way. upset me. No, it, it really upset me. So you know what I told her, frankly, was I yeah. told her, you need to go back to that surgeon. Mm-hmm. You need to tell them to refer you to a good plastic surgeon. If not, I'll give you a couple names. If not, come back and talk to me. I've got a couple ideas for you. It was really bad. Mm-hmm. So first, I want to ask you, Emily. So when you embarked on this process, yeah, a friend referred you, but... Was it important to you or did you seek out whether I was a board-certified plastic surgeon? And did you even know what that meant? Honestly, I did not. And I feel like in the real term blessed, not like hashtag blessed. Like I feel super lucky that I was able to find someone like Dr. Brown. I just, it just happened. And I didn't know what all that meant. But after, you know, a little bit of time and following on Instagram and seeing kind of like all the answers to a lot of the questions he has, the question of the day, I've learned what those things are. Right. And I also, in my process, said to my my husband and I decided, if insurance doesn't pay for this, that's not something I'm going to do. I'm not going to go somewhere else to pay right. $4,000 out of pocket versus 8 to 10. I'm just not going to do it because, right. you know, we don't want to spend that. And that's totally okay. Mm-hmm. But... I was not willing to settle because that's my body. (laughs) So let's do this. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. So this is something I'm super passionate about. It's something that I talk about a lot and that a lot of me and my colleagues talk about. And I'm going to start this out by saying that I'm not bashing other surgeons. Um, The main underlying thing I'm going to talk about is that you should respect the craft. And what does that mean? Mm -hmm. And let's delve into that. Exactly. So I always say to patients, If you needed open heart surgery, 
would you go look for the cheapest surgeon or the best surgeon? You'd seek for the best surgeon, exactly. right? You're not going for cheap. So why should it be any different if you're going to have a cosmetic procedure? Why? Because people don't want to wait for what they want. Right. They're not willing to put the money away and wait to have what they want. So let's talk about the board certification issue. This is a huge problem in our society right now. And the problem is legislation is not really defending mm-hmm. against this. And it's why you're seeing a lot of people die in Miami from BBLs. Right. Most of them are not board certified, but I'm sure that there have been some board certified cases. The issue is this, and I'm going to lay it out plain and simple for people. There's only one institution in the United States of America who decides whether we are board certified in a specialty, and that is the American Board of Medical Specialties. The American Board of Medical Specialties says, you guys are an entity we are going to say that can board certify cardiologists. You guys are, you can board certify plastic surgeons. So for us, the American Board of Medical Specialties recognizes the American Board of Plastic Surgery as the right. sole institution in America that can board certify a plastic surgeon. So where people get duped is the following. If you cannot walk into a plastic surgeon's office and say to them, are you board certified by the American Board of Plastic Surgery? And they cannot say yes to you. They are not a board certified plastic surgeon in the United States of America. And the problem is there's another board called the American Board of Cosmetic Surgery. Right. And so it is not recognized by the American Board of Medical Specialties. So you're oral surgery group, and there mm-hmm. is a group around that I've, you know, and I know, yeah. and they're probably great surgeons, but they're doing breast hogs, and they're doing tummy tucks, right. and they're doing facelifts, and there are ENTs that are doing breast augmentations. Like, look, ENTs do rhinoplasties, and man, have at it. They know the face better than anyone, so I'm okay with that. Those guys do cosmetic training fellowships, but the deal is this. There's only one group that is certified to board-certified plastic surgeons, and that's the American Board of Plastic Surgery. So people need to know They need to be able to ask that question, but there's one step deeper to this whole issue, Mm -hmm. and that is this. Once you've determined that you have a list of people that are board-certified plastic surgeons that you think you want to go see, then it's incumbent upon you to determine who's good and who's bad. Exactly. But And I use this analogy all the time. Well, not everyone, but every driver on the road has a driver's license, but not every driver is a good driver. Right. Right. So you need to figure out of all the board certified plastic surgeons, who's credible, who does good work, who am I going to go see? But don't run off and see the podiatrist because the board certified guy is going to charge you 10 grand and he's going to charge you two because you know what's going to happen? You're going to get exactly Exactly. what you paid paid for. for. And when things go south and it happens, they're not going to be able to help you. Right. So make a good choice. Thank you very much. And I, I really appreciate that because this is what ask, what ask the PA is all about. I try to advocate for patients to ask the right questions. Yep. That's my huge passion. I want people to be able to go into providers' offices and be empowered to know what is important and what's not important. And also, you know, in, in my field, a lot of times, like, I hear all the time, like, the doctor didn't want me to have a second opinion. And as soon as I hear that, I go, guess what? Mm-hmm. You need to run. Yep. Mm-hmm. You do not want to see that provider. I encourage it. If I, if I, I see yeah, that I they're wavering, I'm like, go ask someone yeah. else for sure. And then, and, and the other thing is word of mouth. I'm all about word of mouth. I, I know that when I send patients to certain specialists, they're going to get really great care. I had a patient yesterday. I couldn't believe the comment that this cardiologist made. And I just, and, and I just said to her, here's the deal. You need to go to a different cardiologist. Mm-hmm. I don't like it. I don't think it's right. I don't think it's appropriate. You need to shop around and you need to go. And I think word of mouth is the best. Once you do your, your searching and stuff like that, mm-hmm. you find the right people. 
And obviously you are. And, and what a testament we have with Emily right here yeah. talking about that. And so basically there's a couple things I need to get out. The, what on earth is going on with, first of all, can you educate the world here that we have fat cells? <laughs> all right. You know where I'm going with that. Yeah. So we have fat cells and like the body has so many fat cells. And can you tell me what is all this like? Cool sculpting, micro laser lipo, luxy lipo, laser lipo, ultrasound body contour, <laughs> machines, cooling sculpting. You know, you could buy this machine now that'll do sculpting at home. What the <laughs> heck is going on? Can you help me with that? Yeah, please? I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on. So there's let's break it down into non-invasive procedures and invasive procedures. Yes, so please. a non-invasive procedure would be one of these devices you're talking about, such as cool sculpting. I, I do not promote for them. I have no financial interest in them. Um, but I will tell you, I don't really use it because I just don't think it really works. And I'll tell you what, I, I think that in the right patient with just a little trouble area, sure, maybe it makes a difference. And you're only going to see photos of their best results. Right. But when you get someone coming in who maybe their BMI is a little too high and they're really carrying a lot of extra weight and they don't want to have a surgical procedure, it's going to take so many treatments of cool sculpting mm -hmm. and cost you probably five times what it cost to just have some traditional liposuction to treat the areas that you're trying to treat. And, and so I, that's the cool sculpting thing. And I, you know, people have to make their own decision. I just, as a clinician for myself, have not seen the value in it for me. I have a hard time selling something to a patient that I don't believe in. And by the way, I tried it. So I'm, I'm a pretty fit guy uh -huh. and I have a little bit of extra on my tummy. And I was like, I'm the perfect candidate. I have a little extra on my stomach. I want to check it out. I want to see what it's all about. So I had it done. And what I was left with was a numb stomach for three months. I barely could see any difference in the way that I looked when I was done. That was just my experience. I'm sure you're going to find people that say they have a good experience, but that's just mine. Mm -hmm. So that's non-invasive. Right. Then there's invasive treatments. Of the invasive treatments that you're talking about, the traditional is liposuction. Added on to liposuction are ultrasonic probes and things that we can do for more sculpting and what today we call high-def lipo where you mm -hmm. can really sculpt the abdomen. And they work really well. And I think for the person who's a breast and body guy like myself, I, I've learned how to use those other tools to just enhance what I do with traditional liposuction. Mm -hmm. But traditional liposuction done right can do a great job. It, it, it's really, really good. And I think people get caught up in all these other machines like freezing and burning and oh, heating. Yeah, and I just crazy. feel like there. And so here's my, my, my teaching point. If there was one machine that was that good, we would all have it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yes. Great points. And the recovery time. Can you talk a little bit of uh, the recovery time between um, like traditional lipo and like laser? Mm -hmm. Well, so laser ultrasound guided. So the difference mm -hmm. is when we do traditional liposuction, the cannula suctions the right. fat out. When you do ultrasonic or what people call laser, it kind of melts the fat or breaks up the fat mm -hmm. with ultrasonic waves. Then you have to go behind that with traditional liposuction and suction it out. So recovery for liposuction, kind of whatever kind you have. You're pretty darn sore. I mean, of all the things that I do, liposuction, it makes you pretty tender. Um, and I do it a lot of breast reductions where women will have the excess tissue under mm -hmm. their armpits that the, the reduction doesn't treat, but we want to reduce some of that for them to give them better contour. That's always what they complain of is the liposuction. So, but it's, it's a couple of weeks of being sore. And then it's a good solid two to three months of lymphatic congestion. Right. Right. So the lymphatics, you know, take a good three months to recover. So compression garments and massage. So you don't really see your final result for a good three months. And, and he, contour regularities, 
they happen. It's liposuction. It's nearly impossible to do liposuction without the potential risk for contour irregularities. But because we're board certified, we know more what we're doing than just a traditional, you know, Joe Schmo off the street doing it. Um, there are techniques that we use to try to have that happen, but it happens. There you go. So if you think about that, uh, there's a lot of choices out there. Again, people need to do the research and, and some people are going to try non-invasive procedures. And if they don't work, then they're going to go the other direction. Sometimes they're just going to cut to the chase. And But I'm seeing so many more people seeing you know, the advertising with the non-invasives and all this kind of stuff. And then I was really surprised about these machines that are out there that people could buy. I just don't get that. I just think it's our job to yeah. guide the patient right. to what works best for them. Right. If I see a patient who's got a bunch of excess skin, I'm not going to recommend any right. of that stuff for them. They probably need a surgical excision of their skin. So, you know, I try not to, to overpromise people stuff. Right. Do you ever get uh, insurance to cover any of those kinds of procedures unless no. they're like – those are purely cosmetic. Yeah, and so, do you do some? Do you do some trauma work still? I don't. Okay. I don't. I don't do trauma anymore. I don't take call. Um, you who? Yeah. Um, but I you don't know, you. yeah. Oh, I put in my time there, man. Um, I enjoy trauma, but I just I don't do much of that stuff anymore. I do, you know, I'll, if I see someone with a laceration or a problem, I don't take right. trauma call. But sometimes patients will get referred to me by primary, and I'll I'll take care of them. Okay. Like, do you ever do like a let's say scar revisions mm-hmm. and things like that. I do. I do. And I, it's the problem is a lot of that stuff is cosmetic. Right. Um, I, if I can pass it through insurance, I would, but as you know, the reimbursement on that stuff, it's it, very minimal. I hate to say it, but it's almost not worth the time. And look, it's not like I want to help people, right. but I'm also running a business. I think exactly. people forget the doctors are also running a business and it we is. have to make money. And yeah, the biz, yeah, there's a book that oh, talks yeah, about that. Go. Yeah. So next thing I want to talk about with you is your book. You are an author. It's I awesome. Am. And I love the name of it. Um, the Real Beauty Bible. And it's a beautiful <laughs> uh, cover, by the way. Everyone asked me if that's my wife. <laughs> Your wife's way She's more beautiful. More than that. No, yeah. this one is beautiful. Is. Too. This, yes. <laughs> so tell us about uh, what drove you to write the book, and tell us a little bit about the book itself. I will. Did you get a copy of this? I did. Did you read it? I read a significant amount. Okay, cool. I want to know what you liked and didn't like. Well, and then we'll I'm talk glad about that you're asking me because I really wanted to chime in. So okay. I was like, oh, I wonder. Wonder if I can say something. Oh, you can, that's the thing. You can chime in. <laughs> oh yeah, then, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, and then we'll talk about how I yeah. wrote it. But yeah, I want to hear what you thought. Um, so for somebody who is very like foreign to stuff like this, um, I really had a lot of questions about before and after. And I'm a mom of three, like I said before. And so um, right before this book came out, Doctor Brown gave me a copy when I was in his office, and I just had an opportunity to read about some of the things that would set me up really well beforehand, during, after. And it was really, really helpful. I'm a total planner. And so Mm -hmm. I really loved the practical advice. I also, like, admittedly so, I hate reading books that are, like, boring and hard to read. So I was like, oh, I'll just, I'm going to, I'm going to give it a shot and see how it goes. Super easy to read. You hear his voice in it. Nice. And it was just really nice to have that as a resource. And I've, I've referenced it several times for other people too. Like, hey, check this page, read for three pages. This is specifically what you're asking about. So, Was there anything specific in there you read that you were like, oh, yeah, that really helped? Yeah, I think especially for me, it was like the expectations for like you even said in there, like make sure like you mentioned childcare in your book. Yeah. Like, 
that as a mom to me, I was like, that's pretty awesome. Like he's thinking through the people who are going to be coming to see him. And so I was like, okay, that's a good, like I was thinking about that anyway. I'm a mom, but um, I just felt like, okay, that's good. So what's he saying is the amount of time that I should really make sure that someone is at my house at all times so that when my two-year-old wakes up from a nap, somebody can pick her up. Um, So those very practical, like, in-my-life situations in the book were really helpful. Yeah, so I wanted to ask her first before I answered your question because um, this is the reason I wrote the book. Mm -hmm. I wrote the book. I always wanted to write a book. I just didn't know when I was going to do it and how it was going to happen. And a, a situation just presented itself to me where I had a publisher, I had a distributor, I had an idea. It all came together. So um, when I decided what I was going to write, I wanted it to be something um, because of what we talked about earlier with people being botched and going to see non-board certified surgeons. I wanted to create a guide for people who are interested in doing something to their body, whether it's cosmetic or reconstructive. Right. And for them to be able to pick this thing up and read it cover to cover and know exactly the steps that they needed to take to, number one, make an informed decision mm-hmm. and all the things that they needed to think about with recovery. And so there's three parts to the book. The first part of the book goes through a lot of different stuff that's like, when is surgery right for you? Expectations. How do I talk to my family and friends about wanting right. to have a procedure? Because yeah. not everyone is so pr- supportive of, of mm-hmm. women having or men having cosmetic procedure. Yeah. We talk about finances. So I hit a lot of the stuff that I just basically like I'm having a consult with somebody sure. is what this mm-hmm. book is. The middle part talks mostly about breast and body because I just didn't have enough room to talk about face. I was limited to a certain mm-hmm. amount of pages. And then the third part, which I really like, um, the third part was I wanted to give patients without ever having the experience exactly what it was going to feel like to come for the preoperative visit, to talk about all the things they're going to have to think about. Then I walked them through literally getting the IV, what you're going to feel like, what the OR is going to feel like, the temperature in the OR. So I wanted people to be able to pick it up and have an experience and, and, and put it down and go, wow, I never, ever thought of that, that, and that. Totally get it. That really helped a lot. And one of my favorite sections of the book... Is something you don't hear a lot about when she mentions about me talking about kids. Um, there's a part in here, and it's very brief, but I talk about post-surgery blues is what I, I call it. I was going to bring that up, and, actually. Um, uh-huh. And I don't want to call it depression because I don't think it's full on depression, but right. it's called post-surgery blues, and it's real, and we see it. Mm-hmm. So imagine this. Most of my population of patients are young moms, middle-aged mm-hmm. moms, a lot of them for breast and body stuff, but I see people of all ages. But a large portion of them have children. Right. Not that the moms are the ones that are supposed to do this because, man, I do laundry. I load the dishwasher. I do house stuff. I like doing it. I help my wife do it. But who who gets the burden of most of that stuff? The mom. Mm-hmm. They're helping get the kids ready for school. They help get their lunches and their mm-hmm. food ready. They are planning to pick them up, getting them to sports, all the things that go with being a mom and the laundry and everything. Well, when they have surgery, they're limited to what they can do for about six weeks as right. far as heavy lifting and strenuous exercise. Yeah. So what happens is you've got this young woman who's made this conscious decision to do something very emotional for herself. And all of a sudden after surgery, they're sitting around going, I can't pick up my child. Mm-hmm. I can't make their lunch. Right. I can't do all of these things in the house that I'm used to doing. And they start to get kind of depressed. Mm-hmm. They really do. They get they get the, what I call the post-surgery blues. And so by writing about this, I had a mom tell me, she said, you know what? I pre-made all my lunches. I set up mm-hmm. friends right. to help pick up the kids from school. She sort of, at every step of the way, started to think about what's my day with my children and my mm-hmm. life and who can I recruit to help me with that so that she could just sit and recover 
and appreciate and not feel guilty about what she just did for herself. Yes. Set, and He's that's not just setting promoting expect- himself yeah, right it's, now. It, it's setting, it's setting <laughs> you know, expectations yeah. for yourself and for your family mm-hmm. and just really being prepared, being, you know, proactive instead of reactive. Mm-hmm. And the it's fact really that hard. as a plastic surgeon, you know, you, you took the time to, to analyze all that. And it's kind of like with my book, too, it's a little bit different topic but mm-hmm. you know it's it's looking back and trying to sit in the shoes of the other people mm-hmm. and like when I practice that's what I try to do is I try to put myself in their place and how they would feel and respond to my you know well, to our you know whole encounter together mm-hmm. and stuff like that and to be able to just break it down and make it an easy read that's the other thing is like people today want quick answers fast yeah and they and they it's don't annoying. want dissertations <laughs> I got news for people people that write like Unless it's a really good book, 500 page, book, page books, they're not going to read it. They want quick answers and something that's broken down. So like like your book almost sounds a little bit like mine in the sense that you have the three sections. Mm-hmm. Mine's like where you could open up any page and it's a different yeah. topic. Like it's almost like a cottage book. I definitely yeah. feel like this is the same thing. And so what's yeah. so amazing to me is that this book, there's so many people out there that also want to ask these questions. Mm-hmm. We're afraid to ask. And the reason they're afraid to ask is because they're embarrassed. Yeah. Well, and when you're in an office and you're like, oh, again, yeah. I was nervous. Like, I'm I'm still nervous going in there. It's just not something you do every day, right? When I'm getting checked sure. on. And so when you have the information audibly, it's great. It's there. Mm-hmm. But it slips away. So, like, I remember sitting on my floor in my boys' room and they're playing Legos. And I'm thinking in my head, like, I am freaking miserable. And I totally have these. Post-surgery? Post. Sorry. Yes. I'm miserable. I'm exhausted. I'm super upset. But I, I, in my mind, I referenced this book and thought this is normal and it's okay to feel that way. And so what happens is you set up the expectations for pre-op post-op, mm-hmm. the op. I think it's really <laughs> cool about the IV part. And I think it's really neat about people understanding how cold the operating oh, room yeah. is. It's cold. Yeah, it is. <laughs> you know, and you don't have your Snuggies with you. <laughs> so no, really you don't. Cool. And you know, the other thing that's crazy that I wrote about, I don't know if you experienced this or not. When I talk about that uh-huh. day of surgery, one of the things that, because I just as a resident, I used to see patients get really frustrated by this, that like the same not the same person, multiple clinicians along the way. So the nurse, the doctor, the anesthesiologist would ask multiple questions like, do you have any drug allergies? You know, they would start taking the history. And patients would get frustrated about it. Like, I'm so nervous for surgery, they're thinking. And didn't that person just ask me about whether I had drug allergies? And now you're asking me and that was asking. And so I think I wrote in the book about, look, Mm -hmm. everyone is just kind of triple checking. So we're all on the same page. So don't get frustrated if 10 people ask you if you're allergic to any medications. Right, because it's a source of it's a source of stress. Right, think about if you're the one having surgery and you're just like you want to get it on, man. Can we just go to sleep and get this done? But then everyone's asking you to say exactly. You're very hungry and you haven't had your coffee in the morning, (laughs) and there's nothing good. And then a lot of times they have uh, catheters and all this kind of stuff going on, and you're like so uncomfortable. It's like come on, yeah, (laughs) brilliant. I am so psyched about this book. This is awesome. Everybody that's thinking even about the possibility of having plastic surgery or honestly, any surgery, 
I think this book applies to. Yeah, I think the first and third part do. The middle part, talking about the procedures is is relevant, but irrelevant. It's relevant. And then I kind of go through, not just like, here's what a breast augmentation is. Mm-hmm. It's like, here's what a breast augmentation is. Is it your time to have one? Here are some questions you should try mm-hmm. to answer nice. for yourself. You know, nice. is it right for you? So I like to, at this part of the show, just start hitting like questions. And so like we all can ask questions of each other too. So I think the first question should be, and I just I just slipped. I had a very specific question for you. Uh, let me think about it one second. Um, this is the first time this has ever happened on air. Oh, that's that okay. I, um, <laughs> You're human? I've just had a brain. I have a question. question. So okay, Emily, yeah, would you, do you think that you would ever have another procedure? Are you good to go? I had a great experience, and I admit that I have been a little bit like, maybe not toward other people, but judgy in myself of Mm -hmm. like, why do you need that? Or like, with a breast reduction, it was very clear. I mean, I had 2.2 pounds removed. I will never forget that. 2.2 pounds? 2.2 pounds. Really? My husband showed me... pool shock. I know that's crazy, but he gave me (laughs) two bags, one pound each, and put them in my hands, and he said, that's a lot. (laughs) Like, imagine putting, you know, putting a two-pound weight in your bra. Like, that's a lot. Right. So anyway, doing that for myself and, like, experiencing that and also being educated. Uh, So I, again, I'm like, I learn a lot through Instagram, through Dr. Brown's Mm -hmm. page, just on certification, on just health in general. Um, But there are some things about my body, specifically my postpartum stomach that I'm like, I don't, I am, I don't, I don't know if I should give myself a hard time about my little pouch because I actually don't know if there's anything I can do to get rid of it. (laughs) Nor should you, honestly. I, you know, we haven't talked about the health and wellness center concept that I'm developing. We'll talk about that at some point, I hope. Yeah. But, but you know, look, um, I don't think that everyone's body has to be perfect. I do think we can embrace some of our differences. Are there things about my body that I wish were better? Absolutely. I, it's a work in progress every day. I work out hard because I enjoy it, but I have trouble areas. But is it worth me having like lipo of my flanks or something? I don't know. For me personally, mm-hmm. I'm comfortable with that, but I think it's okay if someone Someone does say, hey, I have a little pooch. It drives me crazy. It's the same thing as my nose. If that's going to make you walk the earth more confident and be different, have at it. So the question I had was, uh, do implants make you sick? Ooh. That was the question. It was like, ah. It's a good question. we've been talking, you know, a lot about reduction, 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 and I was like, ah, implants. This is a great question. Um, So... There are two issues that are going on right now that I think warrant discussing. I'm going to have to try to be brief here. The two issues are the textured implants. Right. And then there's breast implant illness, which is referred to as BII or B2. Right. Textured implants, the Allergan implant, there's something going on with their texturing that the first reported case, I think, was in like 97. Mm -hmm. It's been going on for a long time. But the texturing specifically of that type of an implant, the way they do the texturing or the rough surfacing of it, has caused something called breast implant-associated large cell lymphoma of the breast. It's not a disease of the breast. It's a disease of the capsule, which is the sac that surrounds the implant. And the best way I can describe that to the public is imagine putting on a medical glove. Your hand is the implant. That thin layer of the glove would be called a capsule. Mm -hmm. So the capsule becomes diseased. It's not the traditional lymphoma that you generally need chemotherapy for. But somehow someone has picked up on the fact that these women get a fluid collection. They test the fluid. It shows this lymphoma. And the treatment is to take out the implant and the capsule, and they're pretty much cured. And now that we know about it, we're picking it up so early that it's hardly a problem. But worldwide, 
There have been like seven or 10 deaths, something like that. It People should know it is super rare. It's only like 0.003% of the population. Right. Those implants weren't recalled. They were taken off the market, which means they're not telling women that have them to take them out. They're saying if you develop problems, it needs to be looked into. Can people live with that? No. A lot of people are coming and going, I don't care. I don't have it now, but I can't stand maybe having that one day. So that's one issue. Mm -hmm. The bigger issue that you're alluding to is called breast implant illness. And that that is there are a large population of women out there who feel that or know that and are convinced that the implants themselves have led to some problems in their body that they've had worked I've up heard medically. That several times. Right. So like brain fog, joint pain, mm -hmm. swelling, all kinds of things that are that are happening. And the only thing that they can point that to that's left after being worked up by doctors is their implants. So I want to give my position on this. I would be a fool to sit in front of you guys or the world who's listening right now and say that it is not possible that implants are making some women sick. Right. I do feel that it is, and I've seen firsthand from taking them out for some women that they've gotten totally better. Okay. I will say this, though. There are 55 million women with implants. There's a couple hundred thousand that think they're sick. So when I consult with patients, I tell them the odds are with you. We don't have a test that can tell us if you're at risk. We could say autoimmune is maybe a risk factor, but we don't really know. Right. So my, my point is this. I believe that it's possible. And I would like for surgeons around the country that if they don't believe in this, to not shame or lecture women and just kindly tell them, I don't believe in this, but I can find someone that can help you. So I think it's okay that we don't have a test to diagnose it, but the women need to be heard and, and I hear them and I do believe them. I don't think they're making anything up. I do think there are extreme people in the situation that maybe take it too far, but I just feel like this is something that's at the forefront right now. And we would be really, really poor clinicians for us to continue to lecture and shame women that it's not happening. The bottom line is this. Do I know if it's happening? I don't know. I think it is. But I've seen a lot of women and I do remove them for them and they've gotten better. I had a woman text me on Instagram this morning. I just took hers out last week and did a breast lift. She said, Dr. Brown, I want to thank you for giving me my life back. I have been in the fitness industry for a really long time. It's two weeks later, I am 10 pounds lighter mm -hmm. and I wow. literally feel clarity in my mind. Right. And you can't just placebo some of this stuff away. No. So I do think it's happening and I just want people out there to know that there are a group of us that care about it. And me and about four other surgeons are talking at the Breast Implant Illness Society, Arizona Society Group in October. Great. So I don't have the details of that, but I can get them to you for the That'd notes. That'd be awesome, yeah. But um, it, that's what's going on right now. And I just, I think a lot of women are getting shamed out of, and made to feel like crap yeah, that and they're I having think, these feelings. And it's a mic drop to me. Like just the fact that the integrity that... There are like clinicians out there who care about you and actually want to see you get better. Right. Yeah. And it's amazing. And, and a lot of times for us PCPs, what we try to do is, you know, just go through our differential diagnoses. And then when we get to that point where we just don't know and you have things like you know, implants and stuff like that, you, you go, hey, what I've learned in medicine is never say Never. Absolutely. Right. And I tell patients that all the time. I go, you know what? I've seen a lot of different things. I've been very fortunate in my career to, but I've seen just the most bizarre things. I go, mm -hmm. well, go figure. And I actually did have one patient, it was a couple of years ago, who presented with some issues and kind of a similar situation led mm -hmm. to a plastic surgeon, got their implants removed and felt better. 
I applaud you. You're mm-hmm. like the coolest <laughs> person and surgeon ever. Now, yeah. okay, tell us about your health and wellness center. Okay. We're going to get to everything. And then I have a question for you. Okay. Um, All right. Okay. Fair. So I'm into fitness and health and wellness. Okay. And this kind of ties into um, why I wrote the book and where I'm headed with everything, the whole visceral mm-hmm. fat thing we talked about. This is where all this spawned from. I was trying to figure out what like my next thing was going to be. I was like going to do a med spa like a lot of other surgeons do. And it just hit me one day that I end up spending a lot of time in the clinic counseling patients about tracking their macronutrients, which for those of you who don't know what your quote macros are, it's your carbs, your fats, and your proteins. Mm -hmm. And a lot of fitness industry follows that. It's not for everybody. But trying to coach them about, look, do you do you track what you eat? Do you know how many calories you get in a day? These are for the people that come in to me and say, I've done everything I can do. I exercise, right. I eat well, I can't lose weight. And right. I'm like, no, you haven't. So I start, and I start quizzing them and some of them might, right? So long story short, I find myself educating patients about something I'm super right. passionate about. So it like hit me like a ton of bricks last year that I was like, duh, I need to start a wellness center where I bring all those pieces into my practice. So if I see that patient who's already coming to me who wants to look and feel better and look their best and feel their best, who might still need to lose 10 or 15 pounds for a tummy tuck, but they're struggling to do it, how can I help them? So I've hired a macronutrient coach and a mental, she's got the mental aspect, right? Because it's not always just like Mm. eat less, move more. Like that doesn't work. And there's a mental issue with a lot of people as to what their issue is with food and why they can't succeed. So she's going to coach them for that. She's going to develop a, a meal plan for them. Fabulous. I've hired a meal plan service that makes the food for them. And then finally, I'm going to have a trainer train them. And so nice. I want to want to be able to say to a patient like, hey, look, you're struggling. I'll discount your surgery. Head over to the wellness center. Those guys are going to take it from here. Two, three months, I'll see you back, I hope, and you'll have your surgery. Or maybe you won't need surgery after you do this. Listen, world. Cheers, cheers, baby. This is a big time integrity. Uh, What plastic surgeon tells you you may not have to have surgery? And integrative and a just refreshing approach. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that you're saying here, which with other guests we've talked about, is like take the best of all the worlds and bring it together Mm -hmm. and let's all collaborate and let's try to do what's best for patients Mm -hmm. no matter what, you know? And Thank you. But You're that's, refreshing. But that's the end goal, yeah. right? So, right, so exactly. The, the part of this for me, it's not just about get them the result that they want. The part that you're alluding to is that you and I both know we spend billions of dollars a year in healthcare on right. type 2 diabetes, which is yep. curable with weight loss. Yep. Hypertension, some hypertension is, um, other metabolic syndrome diseases, joint pain from carrying too much weight. So the end all goal here for me is not just so they have the best result, but I want people to change their lifestyles because if you don't have the lifestyle in place before your surgery, you will not maintain a good result after surgery. You need to have those pieces in place where you just know how to manage your own Mm -hmm. life. And then the, the deepest part of it for me is... Childhood obesity and diabetes is out of control, and it didn't exist 20 years ago. And my hope, I really truly believe this. I'm not just saying this. My hope is that when parents change the way they live their lives, the kids, more is caught than taught with kids. I say it all the time on like every podcast I've been on, but I truly believe it. Kids do what you do. They, You could tell them till they're blue in the face to look a certain way or be a certain way, but when they see mom and dad eating better and exercising and living healthier— It just spills over to them. So I'm hoping that it will change generations to come. 
live by example. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you figured out what your legacy is. Trying. I'm totally psyched. So my question for you uh, is I got a question. Okay. okay. <laughs> so my question for okay. you is like you've been in healthcare for longer than me, right? You've been a PA for how many years? Twenty three years. Okay. So I've been out for ten years. How have you seen medicine change for the better or the worse over time? <laughs> oh wow. That would be like a two hour conversation. <laughs> you Pick know, one or two things that you really uh, I'll see. tell you for me, um, I don't think EMRs are doing us any favors. I'll be honest with you. I think EMRs have their place. You know, I still pride myself that I have the ability to practice without the computer in front of me. I mm-hmm. refuse to have that. Mm-hmm. I think what we're doing is we're losing the patient uh, provider uh, communication. I think providers are burnt out. I think providers don't have time. I think they're worried about getting all of their uh, work done as far as their charting and the analytics to keep everybody happy. Barb, can you clarify what an EMR is? I don't know what uh, that is. Electronic medical records. Okay. So I think what's happened Good is question. that the EMRs have kind of like took away the the communication like we're having right mm-hmm. now. And what you have is you have this computer in front of you and everybody's worried about that. That's mm-hmm. a big change in medicine. Mm-hmm. I think uh, insurance companies are dictating more and more and more. Reimbursements are getting worse. I owned my own practice with a business partner for 14 years and we tried to see, you know, uh, our providers see no more than 16 patients a day in primary care. Our average reimbursement was like, you know, 60, 65 bucks. Well, you need to see a lot of patients to keep the doors open. Mm-hmm. It's very very stressful. I think you're seeing a lot of people not go into primary care now or going into medicine in general. Which is scary. Which is really scary as as far as our elderly population getting old, you know. It's a mess. It's a mess. My book talks about that. I think patients feel like they're not heard. I think providers are so frustrated because they went into medicine for the right reasons, but then when they got out in the real world, they started burning out, and it just makes me want to cry for providers. And the debt, not to talk about the debt. Oh, yeah. I mean, PAs, PAs, it's cheap for us. I mean, relatively. uh, Sorry, PAs out there. I know it's like $100,000, $120,000. But for some physicians, we're talking three, four. $500,000. $500,000. And then people say providers make too much money. I mean, literally in my practice a couple of times, I had to say to people that didn't want to pay their copay, well, if you don't pay your $30 copay today and the insurance company doesn't give me that $35, I said, do the math. My my rent is $5,000. My this is this. And finally, sometimes I was real, I was really real with them about it. Mm-hmm. I think there's excitement in medicine. What I think is really exciting is that medicine is becoming very patient-centered as far as cancer treatments, uh, therapies. I'm a cancer patient myself with stage 3 melanoma. I just uh, just got through a year of immunotherapy with wow. uh, Opdivo. Uh, I'm excited for where we're going with genetics and we're learning about people's genetics co- genetic codes. I think medicine is going to become much more customized to the person. Uh, and that's what excites me about what you're doing because that fits the whole picture that we're yeah. going to have to take it one person at a time and accept that if we put six people in the ro- room, everybody's totally different mm-hmm. and just accept it and treat accordingly. Unfortunately, I wish I could have been more positive about that answer. Um, <laughs> it's just I come from four generations of of, of family practice providers. You Very know. intense I mean, on, on the flip yeah. side, though, I'm sure you've seen this like oh. – Technology is out of control oh, in, in an awesome way now. A lot of the like genetic stuff that's going on is yeah. really super exciting. And that's what it, yeah. There's a lot of really cool stuff. But yeah, you're right. It's changed. People are trying to just stopping taking insurance because it's just too hard to get paid. Yeah. 
So I think what's going to happen is that there's going to be a movement out there that I think more people are going to be willing to have to accept that they're going to have to pay more for their yep. health care and they're going to have to be very dedicated to making sure that they have the right providers in place and stuff like that. And it's just going to be one person at a time spreading the word about the mm-hmm. good stuff in medicine. I, there's a lot of good stuff happening mm-hmm. and I don't want people to take take it back or by what I what I said, but I just know that providers are frustrated, mm-hmm. patients are frustrated, and it doesn't have to be that way. If everybody just takes a deep breath and remembers, remember the one thing: what it's all about. At the end of the day, it's all about you, Emily Hughes. Yep, it's all about you. I am so grateful for like this is so refreshing to me just to hear that there are providers that care about you oh. and that want to like have integrity with you because I don't always feel that, and that's scary. And uncomfortable. They're still out there. It's they hard are. To find. You just got to find them. Oh, and yeah, absolutely. Great and just like I am just so um, thrilled to be able to host the two of you. Emily, what a pleasure to meet you. Is there one final thing you'd like to say? Well, I think kind of what I just said, I'm just grateful for, you know, doctors who have integrity and who are kind and who take the extra little bit of time um, just to make you feel comfortable and have kind of that like customer service or bedside manner, if you will. But yeah, I'm just really, I'm really thankful for that. And I'm thankful for these conversations and letting people out there know and updating them and kind of talking through like, we're fighting for what's good too. So. And Dr. Brown. So I'm grateful for all of the people out there like you, Emily, that give me the opportunity to treat them and you trust me with your life, literally, and your mm-hmm. body. And so I'm grateful and appreciative for that so much. Like, I still enjoy being a practitioner. I'm a doctor before I'm a surgeon. I still love to help people at the core of my of my being. And I have to do one more thing. Go for it. So my beautiful wife, Alexis Brown, is listening. Love her to death. So mm-hmm. she's the most supportive person. She's been with me the whole way. And I have twin boys, Brody and Graham, who are nine, who are going to be 10, who are awesome. probably listening as all. I want to let you guys know I love you so much. And uh, I have an amazing family with great support. And at the end of the day, that's what allows me to do what I do, that she's understanding and she knows how I feel about taking care of patients. And so that's how I'm able to be for people like Emily, who I am. Thank you for the support, Alexis and boys. It's huge. Thanks, family. (laughs) Family is what it's all about. Totally. Well, I'll tell you, this has been another fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for joining me in studio. This is Barb Regis, Best of Health Radio, Ask the PA. If anyone's interested in sponsoring a show with me, let me know. The way you can get a hold of me is barb at askthepa.com. Can't wait till the next one. And thank you too for joining us in the studio. Have a good evening. Bye.